Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. In 2020, we have been reading through the Bible together. We are currently learning from the prophets of Israel, who deliver God's intentions and promises by pronouncing judgment and proclaiming hope. Join us as we wrestle through the prophecies and see how they reveal the hope of Jesus, the Christ, the King. If you are able, we would love to see you at one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. A reading from Isaiah 7, 1 through 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Launder's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. With 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. It is, not, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. The word of the Lord. Over these last difficult months, we've been faithful to pray and lament for uh, our world and people around us. We've prayed for medical professionals. We've prayed for people who've been diminished and devastated by racism. We've prayed for our law enforcement officers who are carrying heavy burdens during this time. We've prayed for um, 
other churches and uh, other nations around us, but it's time to pray for parents, right? It's time to pray for some parents. And uh, what I'd like to do is uh, share a lament, uh, a, a liturgy from a book called Every Moment Holy. So I've been uh, learning to love and these prayers. This is a prayer paying tribute to people uh, who are now changing diapers. And for those who have changed diapers, and for those who will change diapers, let us pray. Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that, like bright ragged patches, are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I am not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I am tending a budding heart that, rooted early in such grace-filled devotion, might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction, knowing itself then as both a receptacle and a reservoir of heavenly grace. So, this little act of diapering, though in form sometimes felt as base drudgery, might be better described as one of 10,000 acts of which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy, let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment in the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage point of eternity, O Lord. How the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart how the changing of a heart might sit upstream of the changing of the world. And all of us, especially parents, say together, Amen. In Remy Rougeau's novel, All We Know of Heaven, he tells the story of a young college student named Paul who gets disillusioned during his freshman year. And so in the summer, he decides that to uh, collect himself, he's going to reserve a week at a monastery and become a guest and live with the monks. And while he is there with the monks, he finds not only the meaning of some things of life he'd been looking for, but he's drawn to the solitude and simplicity of the monastic life. The problem is, his non-religious parents and family, they think the monastic life would be a monumental waste of time. And so at every turn, 
They discourage him. And it goes on and on until Christmas of his sophomore year. And he's having a uh, conversation at a Christmas party with the neighborhood. And he starts a conversation with a neighbor, family neighbor named Rene Lazat. And Rene is known in the neighborhood as the charismatic. And so Rene tells Paul, this young college student, hey, have you ever asked for a sign from God? And now we pick up the conversation. Why do I need a sign, Paul asks. And besides, how would I know if something is a sign from God? Renee slaps Paul in the back. You'll know, son. Take me. I've been troubled in my heart about what to do for others. Can't be selfish with Jesus. And all of it came to me in a sign. I was driving in my pickup, driving along one day, and I seen a billboard. And there it was. I said, it said, keep it basic. Drive a Dodge. Oh, you mean that kind of sign, Paul says. I didn't know a billboard could be a sign from heaven. But that's the beauty of it, Rene replies. God's message can come from anywhere, even advertising. Me, I just left out the Dodge part and took the rest to heart. Got home and mailed off a big check to save the children fund. Marie wasn't too happy. That money was earmarked for a new freezer. Turned out, though... We had enough money to get a freezer anyways. God is good with those that give. Praise Jesus and have yourself a good Christmas, young man. Waterstone. Let's keep it basic, shall we? Water, uh, 2020 has been so, well, the only way I would describe it is with a book title. It's been a no good, terrible, very bad year. So, I make a motion, you second. I make a motion that we celebrate Christmas at least twice in 2020. So move. Now, that would be interesting, right? We celebrate Christmas this weekend. Christmas in July, think about it. Think what Christmas would be like while not being high on tradition and nostalgia. What would it be at its very primal, basic sense, Christmas? You know what it would be? A sign. A miracle. And real miracles, you know, they bother people. Miracles bother us because they rebuke the rules and the laws of nature that normally keep us very comfortable. And miracles bother us because if it's really true, if it really happened, we might need to change how we live. Waterstone, here's your sign. You ready? God sent his Holy Spirit to impregnate a young virgin. The virgin conceived and bore a son. And his name was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Merry Christmas. Make of it what you will. Welcome to Love This Book. We've been preaching through the entire Bible, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves in this 300 period, roughly 1,000 to 700 B.C., uh, known as the prophets. 
Now God would send prophet after prophet after prophet because frankly people had begun to put God in the margins of their life. They began to refashion him to their convenience. So God would send them screaming and reaming and rebuking and provoking and performance drama in any way possible to get people's attention. He would call them back to God as the center of their life. And the basic message of the prophets in two words was judgment and hope. Judgment, it's a word we don't like. It's a word that makes us squirm, but it's a word that's true. What judgment means is that if God exists and he made us and he owns us, then each of us will at the end have to give an account for what he's given to us. Judgment, accountability, and there comes hope. Because if we acknowledge God, and we acknowledge his ownership of our lives, and frankly, we bend to him now, then all of our mistakes and failures are placed on Messiah, his son, whom he sent. And in that word is hope, that one day we get to live with God in, at home forever. Judgment and hope meet together in this one Messiah, this promised person that the prophets talk about over and over and over again. The Emmanuel sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. No prophet predicts more about Jesus than the prince of the prophets, Isaiah. It's interesting, Isaiah was probably a royal Part. He was a nephew of the 10th king of Israel, Amaziah, and cousin to all the kings uh, from then on. And he probably was in the royal courts often, a man with influence and education, well regarded in his day. And he had a vicious, I mean, an amazing command of language, which we're not surprised that George Frederick Handel used as his primary source, the book of Isaiah, to write Handel's Messiah. And so tonight, we want to see what Isaiah has to say about Messiah, about this promised one in whom all the hopes and fears of all the years would meet in him tonight. We want to talk about Jesus as the Emmanuel sign. But first, we want to see what this Emmanuel sign means to Isaiah in his day, and then we'll talk about what the Emmanuel sign means in Jesus and our day. Let me give the setting to the text of Scripture that Jenna read. Begins by understanding there's an empire on the rise a huge worldwide empire of its day called Assyria. Their capital city was Nineveh, and in Central Asia, they had conquered all that and were beginning to make their way down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, and their goal was to reach Egypt and connect the entire known world in one empire. And they were swallowing up nation after nation, coming down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. They were about to capture and take Syria, in the northeast of Israel, and then they were about to capture Samaria, which was the new name of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, Syria, Samaria. But what happened was that when the intelligence got to Syria and Samaria, that Assyria was coming, they decided to form a mini-alliance and try to resist Assyria. They were thinking, if Syria gets so far spread out and we have a strong resistance, who knows what could happen? And then they decided they were going to ask Judah the southern kingdom of Israel, and their 20-year-old king Ahaz to join their alliance. Well, I take that back. They didn't ask them. They said, if you don't join our alliance, Judah, we're going to invade you. 
And the text is filled with fear. The text is generated a tree shaking in the wind. Everyone is worried, sleepless nights. When are Syria and Samaria going to invade our land? It's a context of fear and dread. So, God sends Isaiah to have a very important meeting with the 20-year-old king Ahaz of Judah. Now, a couple things I want to point out about this meeting. First, if you look at verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jesheb, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Now, that's a description like very few others in the Old Testament. Eight words in the Hebrew. In our day, it would be like an exact satellite coordinate. There's a specific place where this meeting is going to happen. So God sends Isaiah there, and he tells him specifically to take your son, Shir Jashub, with you. And then he says, here's what I want you to say to this king. Here's the king's speech. Keep calm, carry on, don't be afraid, don't lose heart. Why? Because Syria and Samaria are like a burned out stick, all smoke, no fire. And then, as you remember Jenna reading, God plainly says, Any invasion will not happen. It won't happen. So, don't make any alliances with them. Don't make any other alliances. Just stand firm. In fact, you see at the end of verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for stand is the word amena, which we get our word amen. Isaiah is inviting to Ahaz to give his deep allegiance to the Lord, back to the Lord again. He's saying, whatever it is in your heart that you would say amen to, make it the Lord. Stand firm so you can be steadfast. So give the amen to the Lord. And then, God is so much wanting to call his people back onto mission to be a light for the nations, back into relationship with him, stop worshiping the other gods around the surrounding nations, come back to me, that he, he now says to Ahaz, Ahaz, I'll even give you a sign. Do you want a sign that this is going to happen, that you won't be invaded? Here's your sign. And Ahaz says, uh, no thanks. I don't need a sign. I don't want a sign. Either his mind was already made up, and we're suspicious that he's already begun to make alliances, or, and he seems to cover it with this false piety of saying, well, we, we shouldn't tempt the Lord. This Ahaz, who we know is already a worshiper of Baal and probably sacrificing children to the god Baal. He was not in step with the Lord God of Israel. So he refuses the sign And then, verses 13 and 14, can you tell, and the way Jenna read it was so good, can you tell that Isaiah's a little bit miffed here? Here, now, you house of David, is it not enough you try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, now isn't it interesting that one of the key prophecies to Jesus in the Old Testament is given in anger. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Ahaz, make your decision. Either give your amen to the Lord and come back into relationship with him and trust him that he has the situation in his hands or trust human wisdom, trust human strength, 
Make your own way. It's your choice. What's interesting about the actual anticipation here is, uh, first of all, Isaiah's word choice for the word virgin. The normal word for wife or woman in Hebrew was Issah, used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. That's not the word. The word for virgin in Hebrew is the word betula, and that's used to speak of a strict group of women who are virgins, and that word is not the word used here. The word used here is the Hebrew word alma, which means a young woman of marriageable age. And of the 14 different words to use of women in the Old Testament, it ranks about 13th on the usage. The point is it seems Isaiah is creating something of mystery here with an ambiguous kind of open word. A virgin, a young woman of marriageable age will conceive. But here's what's interesting. It has the definite article in front of it. The virgin. So it speaks of a specific woman. And we go on to chapter 8 to find out who this woman is who will conceive and give birth to a son. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Maher shalahashbash. So I called Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberkiah, as reliable witnesses for me. And then I made love to the prophetess. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. Same language, conceived, gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maherselahashbash. For before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria, Syria and Samaria, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. What's going on here? Simply this. God wants to give Ahaz a sign to call his people back. And that sign will be the birth of a child but that Isaiah and his wife produce. And the name of that child uh, will be Maher Shalahashbash. You got it. Christmas by any other name is Maher Shalahashbash. Mary Maher Shalahashbash. The word name means quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. His nickname was Victory. By this child, Maher Shalahashbash, growing up, and it says before he can eat curds and honey, which is the food of royals, sit at the royal table, and it says before he knows right from wrong, which is, that's the Hebrew way of saying bar mitzvah, before this boy is 12 years old, Syria, 732 B.C., will be swallowed up by Assyria, and Israel, the northern kingdom, Samaria, will be swallowed up by Assyria in 722 Within a 12-year period, these two nations who you are so scared of will no longer exist. Here's your sign. Maher Shalahashbash. Watch him grow. Merry Christmas. See the sign? See the sun. God is with us. The other interesting thing about the passage is not only Isaiah's word choice, it's also how prevalent children are in these three chapters, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. I mean, we have Shir Jeshub, who, who God specifically tells to bring with Isaiah to have the meeting with Ahaz. Shir Jeshub, by the way, that name means a remnant will return. So they called him hope. There was hope and there was victory. Now, 
there's the mention of the Emmanuel sign, a child. And then there's Maher Shalahashbash, another child. And then we get to chapter 9, and there's this great saying that's, uh, you know, the center of Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. There's a pattern here that whenever God wants to move nations, whenever he wants to reveal himself, whenever he wants to show the world what he's like, he doesn't bring armies and he doesn't use swords, he brings a child, a kid's head sticking up over a wall and saying, God's here, God's here. It's a pattern. It started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after we rebelled against God and God you know, removed us from his presence. But he made a promise as we were leaving God's presence. He said, one day the offspring, child, of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It's a child. It's a child. God brings to us a child, which is why when Matthew is reading Isaiah 7, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, he's reading along, and he knows this pattern of how God's working. And he reads Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin. And here's a really interesting tidbit for you. The word virgin in the Greek there in the Septuagint is actually the word panthanes, which is the strict word in the Greek for a virgin. Somehow the translators interpreted the word properly. And he reads it and he said, wait, a virgin shall conceive. This is pointing to the one I lived three years of my life. This, this is pointing to Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary. And he puts this together and anticipates the Messiah. God with us. Do you see the sign? Do you see the sun? God with us. Us. This Jesus, just like Mahershala Hashbaz said, that it's not the surrounding stresses of our life that we need to worry about most. It's that we know and love God. See the sun. See the sign. God with us. God. Right? God. The early Christian writers loved to talk about how Jesus was God. John put it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the one and only full of grace and truth. No one has seen the Father except the Son and the Son has come to put the Father into words. And Paul loved to talk about Jesus as God. He said, Jesus who being in very nature God emptied himself of all that pre-existing glory and he put on the form of a servant, became a man obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul talks about Jesus as God. And Peter preaching in the book of Acts said, it's none other than this Jesus, the Christ who's come and with his blood has purchased the salvation of the church. Peter, John, Paul, all talking about Jesus as God. And you say, well, Larry, of course, the early father, they're trying to start a movement. They would think Jesus is God. But what did Jesus think? Well, Jesus claimed to be God. In John, he says uh, at a funeral, are you worried about death and dying? I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. Are you worried about finding meaning and significance in life? Jesus said, I am the living water, and if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Are you worried about making decisions in the last and having guidance and God's presence with you even in the hardest days of your life? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Those the sheep know my voice. They will never be alone. Jesus made these massive claims of godness. Not only did he say it and talk about it, but he acted like he was God, right? 
In Mark chapter 2, there's a paralyzed man and his friends. They can't get him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they get up on the roof, pull the, 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 the grass off the roof, and drop him down. And he drops down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And that really teed up the pastors in the room. They were very upset. And they say to Jesus, who are you? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, this one thing, pastors, you understand. I mean, it would be like this, right? If, if I went up to Rowan and stole $20 from Rowan and we're having this discussion because Rowan catches me in the act and then Jesus walks up to Rowan and Larry and says, Larry, I forgive you. How would Rowan feel about that? You see, Jesus acted as if every sin was chiefly against him and was his to forgive. That's the beginning of his ministry, the end of his ministry, Jesus acting like God. He's teaching near the end of uh, his life with us, and he's in Matthew 25, and he says, at the end of time, at the end of this age, there's going to be a massive gathering of all nations before the glorious throne, and I will sit there in my glory, and I will judge the nations, and every single person of every single nation will appear before me, and the question will be, did you know me, and did you fulfill my kingdom? Did you live for me? Can you imagine? Now, I would never do this, but can you imagine if Paul Joslin, who's from Dallas, Texas, and a Texan might do this, got up and said to you, uh, every single one of your destinies depends on what you do with me. What would you think of that person? Who in the world does he think he is? You see, Jesus not only claimed to be God, he acted like God. God with us. With. With God. You see, up until Jesus came, most every experience with God was traumatic. And it ended up with people on their face before God. They were shook by seeing his otherness, his holiness, and they bowed down. And Moses, you remember, spent time with God, and he was so full of glory when he came off the mountain, he had to wear a face mask because he was blinding people by reflected glory off of God. It was an encounter of trauma. It's something like celebrity trauma. Have you ever seen celebrity trauma? One of my favorite Christmas stories is years old now, and I've used it often, but I don't care. It's a great story. Uh, a young woman comes and visits Hollywood. She's in an ice cream store. She's paying for her ice cream cone, and up behind her walks none other than Paul Newman. Now, for some of the kids in the room, I know you're asking your parents who Paul Newman is. He's like the Ryan Gosling of our day. Maybe Brad Pitt. Maybe Matthew McConaughey. Paul Newman standing right next to her. Gorgeous blue eyes. She shook. But she pays for her cone, walks out of the ice cream store, meets up with her friends. Paul Newman's in there, Paul Newman. And they watch him, and he, he move, pays for his ice cream, moves off to the counter. She realizes when she's out there, oh, no, I forgot my ice cream. So she goes back into the ice cream store on the counter looking for her ice cream cone when she feels a tap on her shoulder, turns around, and it's blue eyes. It's Paul Newman. And she sa he says, miss, if you're looking for your ice cream cone, you stuck it in your purse celebrity trauma. That's something, one you know, ounce of what it's like to meet 
God. But then God wants to invite us back into relationship with him. God wants to call us back into mission. So what does he do? He sends us his son to call us back to himself. But how does his son come? As a baby. See the sign? See the son? God with us. A baby. A baby who cries and needs picked up. A baby who needs a diaper change. A a baby who wants to be held A baby accessible, a baby vulnerable, a baby helpless. God comes so that we will pick him up. A baby. Jesus wants to be known, wants to be held by us. God with us. Us. Who? Us. Ahaz, a 20-year-old king who worships pagan gods. Come back to God. Isaiah, a wealthy man, highly educated. Come to God. Shepherds. When Jesus appears, someone no one, had, no one wanted in their living room, smelly, lying shepherds, wise men, people from foreign nations around the world. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God wants to be in relationship with you. All you need is nothing. Simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. God with us. See the sign, see the sun, God with us. If you see God with us, there's at least two things we need to do. First, some of us need to make up our mind about Christmas, what this miracle really is about. You see, there's two men at this exact satellite coordinate meeting there by the water supply of Jerusalem. One of them's a 20-year-old king with power and wealth. And he chooses, he makes up his mind about this Emmanuel sign, and he says, no thanks. I will trust in human wisdom. I will trust in human strength. What we know happened is that Ahaz decides to uh, make a secret deal with the king of Assyria in order to help Judah fight in battle against Samaria and Syria, and it totally backfires on him. But he trusts in himself, in his wisdom, in his strength. The other man standing there, Isaiah, he trusts in what God says about a virgin conceiving and giving him a son, quick to the spoil, swift to the splendor. He believes, you see, that God lives in this place Judah, about the size of Delaware, that God lives there, and because God lives there, that's the center of the universe. Delaware. There's a choice to be made. Who rules? Who's the boss? Whose word? You see, everyone believes a story. Everyone, every life is predicated on the stories they believe to be true. What's your story? Who's in charge? And so that's the first thing is you've got to make up your mind about what Christmas means. There's two men standing at the same spot 30 years later. In Isaiah 36, we read this. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more. The king of Assyria sent his field. Sorry. Next one. Isaiah 36. Thanks. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lake Tish to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is Ahaz's son. Next king. 
Hezekiah at Jerusalem, when the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. You see the exact same satellite coordinates. The exact same place. 30 years later, a conversation is held with Ahaz's son Hezekiah and this messenger from the king of Assyria. And the response of Hezekiah is totally different than Ahaz. We go on to read in Isaiah 36 that the first thing Hezekiah does as he goes to the temple of the Lord to pray. You see, when you believe that the Lord is the one who's in control of every event around us, our instinct is prayer. And we are never more powerful or receptive to God's efforts in and through us than when we're on our knees. So I want to invite you again, Waterstone. We've been spending time fasting and praying this summer. Tuesdays at lunch, whatever time you could do it on Tuesdays, would you please join us in fasting and praying, praying for our church to be renewed during this COVID time, praying for our country to find peace, and praying for our world to find salvation. Would you please join us with Hezekiah in prayer? for what's going on around us. And then secondly, second thing Hezekiah does is he calls for Isaiah. Isaiah, would you come? I want to hear more of God's word. I'm asking us, Waterstone, are you working and striving to draw near to God? You've seen the sign. You've seen his son. God with us. Now are you drawing close to God during this time? Are you wanting more of his word? Are you making extra efforts to read his word or listen to his word? Even getting up in the morning, you say, Larry, I'm terribly busy. I'm not sure I have the time. It's a busy summer. What I would say to you is this, remember the efforts that God took to be close to you. So will you not now make every effort to draw close to him? I'm asking you, during this time, 550,000 people dead from this pandemic. Will you give your amen to the one who sent his son and said, see the sign? I'm with you. From the intense, frustrated, angry streets of Jerusalem and Hong Kong and Detroit and Denver. Will you give your amen to the one who said, I sent my son to weep on those streets? Will you give your amen to him? See the son, my son, see the sign, God with us. For those in our homes who've had jobs furloughed, whose marriages are stressed because of these last few months, whose health has been challenged and changed, will you give your amen to the one who says, my son, I've given him for you. See the sign? I am with you. As we come to the table of the Lord, we're going to take a moment and just have some quietness and prepare our minds and our hearts to be with Jesus. We're going to have some prayers on the screens. But I want to invite you again to say to Jesus in this time, Jesus, I know you are the sign from God that you 
are with us. I believe. There's a prayer that I want us to pray. If we could go to the prayers uh, for communion as we prepare. Lord Jesus Christ, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever dared admit, but through you I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. I thank you for paying my debt on the cross, bearing my punishment and offering me complete forgiveness. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, I turn from my sins and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. For those of you uh, live stream, we invite you to get the elements of communion ready. For those of us here together, if you would please take the communion and I would invite you to tear off the top flap and tear the bread off. And now we just sit for a moment of quiet and prepare our minds and our hearts as Jesus said. See the sign. See my son, God with us. God's Son, our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. <laughs> 